2 Corinthians chapter number 7 is where we'll begin. And this was something you might have noticed. Every once in a while, the Lord will lay a thought on my heart uh, just before I get to the pulpit. And sometimes you'll see me sitting over here jotting something down. I want you to understand that's typically what I'm doing, is just trying to put one final thought in if the Lord lays something on my heart, whether it's on my drive here or maybe while we're communicating with one another. And this morning, God put this passage on my heart with great purpose, and I'll share with you why in a moment. We'll read it in a moment. But I want to just quickly go over what we've looked at the past few weeks, and my hope is this morning to conclude what has turned into a five-part sermon series that began with this title, Being in the Right Place at the Right Time. We shared with you that of all the moments in history, I believe this is perhaps one of the most important for the child of God to be abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we shared with you what that means and how you and I are to do such a thing. We spent some time looking at Psalm chapter number 23, at what it looks like to abide in Christ. We get to a place where we say, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And abiding in the shepherd and his green pasture is more than sufficient. We need nothing else is the idea. And then we moved on from there and last week began looking at this thought, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And we have used David's own fall from grace, his fall into sin, if you will, that we see in 2 Samuel, and we'll get there in just a little bit, but in 2 Samuel chapter number 11, we see David going from being very close to God in his way that he authored Psalm chapter number 23, and then we see David fall far from God into sin. And it is devastating the impact and effect that this has not only on David himself, but his kingdom. The effect that it has on Bathsheba and her unborn child. The effect that it has on Uriah. The effect that it has on the military personnel that are surrounding David. There is no question that this sin that David falls into with Bathsheba is absolutely devastating. The reason this all occurred, I believe, is because David was at the wrong place at the wrong time. And we shared with you last week, and I know many of you have heard preachers say these words before, that sin always takes you further than you want to go. And boy, wasn't that ever indicated in David's fall into sin. It took him certainly further than he wanted to go. There's no question That when he woke up that morning, the day that kings were supposed to go off to battle, and he chose to send uh, his military leaders in his place, and he stayed behind. There is no question in my mind that when he woke up that morning, he had no intentions that by 72 hours from that moment, he would be a murderer and an adulterer. But that's where sin took him. Sin always takes us further than we want to go. It always keeps us longer than we want to stay. It was amazing how David attempted to try to manipulate Uriah to do things that would get him off the hook. That's what he was trying to get at. David was trying to get off the hook and he was trying to manipulate and deceive to cover his own tracks. And it all boiled down to the fact that he thought this could all be over in a minute. That it wasn't something that was just going to last and last. That it was just just one, one thing and it was going to be over with. It was going to be done. It was just a momentary pleasure that he wanted to fulfill. And of course, sin doesn't work like that. It always keeps us longer than we want to stay. And then finally, we looked last week at the fact that sin always costs us more than we want to pay. 
the reality was that uh, Uriah would ultimately be killed because of this sin. Bathsheba was going to lose her husband and she was going to lose her unborn child. David was going to experience war for the remainder of his days. And we know because he was a man of war, he was not permitted by God to build the temple. That responsibility was passed on to his son Solomon. And so uh, it really cost David a, a, a great amount to fall in to this sin. sin. And what we concluded with last week was finding God's perspective. What was God's perspective all of this? We know, look at with me, well, we'll look at it in a minute. Second Samuel chapter 11 at the very end, it says that this all displeased the Lord. It all displeased the Lord. And we saw in Nathan's rebuke of David there in 2 Samuel chapter number 12, Nathan comes and he gives this story about a little sheep that was best friends with his owner. And, and this, this owner loved this little sheep. He took the sheep into his home and he nurtured the little sheep, the little lamb. And he, he fed him from his table and he let him drink out of his own cup. And the relationship between that man and that little lamb was just extraordinary. It wasn't like your normal relationship. And some traveler comes along and he asks some rich man in the kingdom, hey, could you, could you feed me something? And instead of the rich man taking from his own flock, he goes over to this man who only has one lamb that is his dearest friend and he slaughters his lamb in order to meet what that guy was asking for. And of course, whenever David hears this, he gets what he thinks is righteously indignant over the situation. And he says, bring me the man that slaughtered the lamb. I'll have him repay tenfold and I'm going to kill him. And Nathan looks into David's eyes and what does he say? He says, David, you're the man. You're the man. And what happens in that moment is we're given God's perspective of what has happened here between David and Bathsheba. And the final thought that we shared with you is the need for God's people to feel God's displeasure over sin. I concluded with this statement. I want to start off with it this morning and then we'll read 2 Corinthians chapter number 7 because it has everything to do with this thought. And it's something I want to really dwell on this morning if you'll give me the liberty to do so. It's not a comfortable thought, but it's a thought nonetheless that I believe God wants us to have and be mindful of in our Christian lives. I believe that there is a desperate need for God's people to rediscover the weight of God's displeasure over our sin. When we fail to walk through the weight of God's wrath over sin on our journey from sin to forgiveness, it makes the path from forgiveness back into sin seem much easier to travel. The idea of what I'm trying to say there is that there are a lot of people, especially in what's being taught among churches today, that that we don't have to feel guilty over our sin. That we can skip right past the guilt and the discomfort of knowing that God is displeased with what we've done. We can somehow skip straight from guilt into forgiveness. I'll tell you what it's like. God laid this on my heart yesterday. It's a lot like, like the man that traveled to a faraway country and On his trip there, he decided he wanted to sit back towards the back of the plane, pay a a cheaper fare, and and he got back there and fell asleep, and the cart coming down the middle aisle was constantly bumping into his arm, and 
seemed like every time there was turbulence, it was a bit more bumpy and and different things. And it, it just was not the greatest experience. He had different ones that were loud all around him. And and he just wasn't comfortable on the journey to that faraway country. So he decided on the way back, instead of having eight stops on my way there and ten hours of layovers and sitting back there in the crowd of people and great discomfort, instead of going that route, I'm going to book a, a first-class ticket, non-stop flight back home. It's kind of funny. It's, I'm, I'm literally describing for you a personal experience of ours. When I was about 16, no, 15 years old, I think I was, 15 years old, my dad had a business trip to go on uh, over to the country of Wales. And whenever we went to Wales, we had to go to London, England first and then get a train over to Wales. And so my dad, not ever being there before, none of us had ever been there before, we land in London and we start looking for a train to take from London to Wales. We thought this would be a great idea. And so lo and behold, we, we book a train. And my dad at that time, he's thinking, well, we'll get the cheapest ride we can. I think that'd be a good idea. And so he books this train and we get on there. And I'm here to tell you something. The, there was nothing comfortable about that four-hour train ride. Now that was, by the way, that was four hours without any stops, okay? I'm, I'm saying it was four hours of just being on a train. We ended up having to shift from one train to the other train. You ready for this? Nine times on our way from London to Cardiff. That was miserable. By the time, And we had all of our baggage for a 10-day trip and... And you could, and of course, us boys, we were the main carriers of the luggage. That's how it works, you know. We, we weren't there for the pleasure of it. We were just there to be the pack mules. That's what we were. And so literally, my mom and dad, we, have, we each, each of us boys, we've got a bag on our shoulders. We've got a bag in this hand, a bag in this hand, a bag stacked on top of those bags. And we're wheeling from one train to the other. It took us a, a total of, I want to say it was about 12 and a half hours. Now remember, it was a four-hour train ride. It took us 12 and a half hours to get from London to Cardiff. And so on the way back, and we already had decided we are not going to do this again. And so on the way back, my dad, he decided he wanted to book, I believe they called it business coach. And basically on business coach, you walk in and they have got a table set up, fine dining china. They've got uh, uh, glasses that are made out of crystal and, and you walk, they got soft music playing. I'm sitting there thinking, why didn't we do this on the way there? Of course, as a 15 year old boy, you're not thinking about the cost. You're just thinking about the comfort. And so we get in there and I, by the time we got back to London, it was just four hours, just straight there. No stops at all. Sitting in the business class, we got to eat dinner on the way. I mean, it was gorgeous. And by the time I got back to London with my family, here was my thought. You know, I wouldn't mind to go back to Cardiff again because the trip from Cardiff back to London was such an enjoyable trip. Say, preacher, what are you trying to say? I guess what I'm trying to say, and God helping me to do so, is we've got too many Christians who are booking a first class, one way ticket from sin to forgiveness. That's good. And because we're not spending any time in the wrath of God, we get over here to the forgiveness that God offers in Christ, and we look back over to that place we were visiting called sin, and we think, hey, the trip here was so pleasant, I think I'd like to go back and visit every once in a while. God help us. 
We need more Christians who will travel the right path back to the forgiveness that's offered in Christ. And I believe if we'll travel that proper path back to forgiveness, when we look back to sin, we're not going to want to just jump right back into it. We're going to think, and God reminding us by His Holy Spirit, we're going to know, listen, the trip from there to here was not a pleasant trip. I don't want to go back. Say, preacher, is there a Bible on this or are you just giving us an illustration? Well, look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter number 7. 2 Corinthians chapter number 7 and verse number 8. I just think this is so critically important and I believe it's why we see in David's life from this point forward, he never gets himself in this same predicament again. What he does with Bathsheba in the murdering of Uriah, from from all accounts, what we can tell, David didn't go back to doing that. And there's a reason for it. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 8. The Bible says there, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. What the Apostle Paul is saying in verse number 8, he's saying, hey, when I wrote 1 Corinthians, okay, we're in 2 Corinthians. When I wrote 1 Corinthians under inspiration of the Holy Spirit and I sent it to you, I had cinder's remorse for a little while. I got to thinking about how harsh I was as I penned that letter. And as I sent it off to you, there was a little time that I felt bad about how hard I was on you. But I'm not sorry about it no more. In fact, look at verse number 9. He goes on to say, "Now, Now I rejoice. Not that ye were made sorry, listen to this, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. Now listen to this verse. This is going to be the key to the whole sermon this morning. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. Not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is he's saying, listen, when I first wrote 1 Corinthians to you, I felt bad about how harsh I was, but I'm not harsh anymore. I'm not sorry about it anymore because I look at your life and I can see that that first letter brought about a godly sorrow in you and the pain and the agony that you felt over your sin in the past now has worked in you repentance where you have turned from that sin and you're not going back. We see this in David. Look with me back at 2 Samuel. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter number 12. I want, I want to see this played out here in the life of David as he's feeling God's displeasure. Remember, we started with falling from God's plan and we showed you the different sins that ultimately led to where David is at now. And then we looked at finding God's perspective. Nathan comes along as God leads him to and shares plainly what God thinks about what David just did, which is so critically important. It's one of the things that's being left out of most sermons today is God's perspective on sin. 
And the reason it's so important is because it's God's perspective on David's sin that brings David to 2 Samuel chapter number 12 and verse number 13. Look at what it says here. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. The Bible says, And David said unto Nathan, this is right after Nathan has just got done describing that David is the man and that God's justice is going to fall. There is going to be a great cost that David's going to have to pay for what he's done. And this is David's response. Verse 13, And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die, howbeit because by the deed that thou hast given a great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to, to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And Nathan departed unto his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. Hmm. David's immediate response tells us so many things about David's path back to forgiveness. And I want to highlight this because his response is not only given to us here. Here we're just given a few short words. I have sinned against the Lord. But in Psalm chapter 51, we're given a, a greater breakdown of what David's really going through, both internally and externally in this moment of sorrow, what we call godly sorrow. Here he says, I have sinned against the Lord. I want to take some time and consider that this morning by looking first at what I call the culprit of sin. The culprit of sin. Who is to blame for your sin? It's a really important question to ask because it seems like there's a lot of confusion about that right now in our world. It seems like what we're being told by philosophers, by psychologists, by deans and professors in colleges, it seems like from what I can tell that my sin is everybody else's fault. That I am not personally responsible for anything that I've done that is less than upright. That's what they're telling us. That's the way I understand it. I mean, whenever I think back to my childhood, I'd like to think that it was my dad's fault for some of the things I've done. I'd like to think that my mom is to blame for part of it. And that's not even talking about granddad and grandmother. Then I think about the school and I think about my friends and I think about my cousins and I think about my wife. And by the time it's all said and done, it's no wonder I'm such a sinner. I mean, we don't say it that way, but that's the way we're being programmed to think about our own sin. And I want you to notice David doesn't do that. David starts off with the word I. He understands something that many of us have forgotten, that he is personally responsible for his own sin. And you know, I got to thinking about this yesterday as I was putting some final thoughts on the sermon about what happens to us internally when we are willing to accept personal responsibility for our sin. You know what has come as a result of us blaming everyone else for our own sin? Bitterness. And a boatload of it. A whole lot of bitterness. And bondage, by the way. There are people who will spend their... Listen to this. This is important. There are people who will spend their entire life trying to figure out who all is to blame. That's right. 
And they will literally get to their dying days and look back on their life and all they will see is that they have been held in bondage to bitterness because they've spent their whole life trying to figure out who did them wrong that made them this way. Boy, what sweet, sweet freedom there is. Can I tell you what sweet freedom there is? And finally being willing to say, I have sinned against the Lord. We don't think of it that way, do we? We think by taking personal responsibility for sin that somehow we will feel even worse and more guilt. No, that's not what happens. What happens is I finally get to the bottom of who the real culprit is. For my sin, and it's me. I'm the culprit. The second thing we see here in this passage uh, that David says is there's a confession of sin. Not only do we see the culprit of sin, we also see the confession of sin. Notice what he says in verse 13. He says, I have made a mistake. Is that what he says? No, he doesn't say that, does he? I have committed an error. He doesn't say that either, does he? Boy, we have tried to come up with every word under the sun for the word sin, haven't we? Just a little misstep. I just kind of misspoke. Bible calls it sin. And I know it's an unpopular word, but it's, it's such an important word because it's, it, it embodies the reality of what it is that we have done. We have transgressed against the Word of God. God sets the standard and man breaks that standard. Say, preacher, why is that so important? Because it brings into perspective what the cross was all about. If we fail to understand that what we have done is actually sin, then when we talk about the great sin bearer who gave his life on the cross of Calvary, it doesn't compute with my life as much as it ought to. Whenever I understand that every time I break God's law, I am sinning against my Creator, it will change the way we view that cross. He says, I have sinned. The third thing we see here is the conflict of sin. I want you to notice he says, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. He understands who it is that he is fighting against here. And we must stop sugarcoating our transgressions and we must realize that our sin is actually against God Himself. Say, preacher, how could you say such a thing? My sin was against my mom, or my sin was against my siblings, or my sin was against my spouse. David here says, I sinned against the Lord. Why is it that David has that perspective? Well, because of what I just now got done saying. Who is it that sets the standard? Who is it that gives us the instruction? God does. When my children, when I go to my children, I know this is hard for you to believe, but my children are sinners. Did you know that? You know why? Because their father was a sinner. Still is. And so my children are sinners. I know that's hard for some of you to believe. You saw them up here and they're just all sitting all still. Well, mostly. (laughs) Believe me, we have our moments. If I looked at my children, give you a good example. 
I try to be careful about what examples I, I give with my family because I don't want to embarrass them in front of the congregation. But I also recognize that God's given me a family with great purpose. And one of those purposes is to teach me things about God that I would never otherwise learn other than having the family that I have. Last night we were about to go to bed. And I've told the boys a couple different times, hey, don't stick sharp things in your mouth. It could cause real problems. And I've also told them, hey, don't swing pillows at each other. It could cause problems. Well, last night, Asher took a little walkie-talkie antenna and stuck it in his mouth. And he's sitting there in his bed. We, I mean, we were literally winding down for the night. It was bedtime. He sticks that antenna into his mouth. And without looking, without even knowing what was going on, Canaan, from the top bunk, just takes his pillow and swings it down like this. And he popped the end of that thing, and it just jabbed right into the back of Asher's throat, bloodied the back of his throat. He starts screaming and crying. And I come in there and I said, now how many times have I told you not to put that in your throat and not to swing pillows? And you did both of them. This is the sort of stuff that happens. In that situation, they broke what I asked them to do. In very much the same way, whenever we fail to do what God's told us to do, the one we're really sinning against is the God who gave us that instruction. David understands this, and he understands that this conflict of sin is not a conflict that's just about him and the kingdom, or him and Bathsheba, or him and Uriah. He understands that the God of all creation is who he's fighting against whenever he commits this transgression. The fourth thing we see here is the calamity of sin. Look at verse number 14. It says, and this is so important to remember in verse 14, Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. This is devastating news. Heartbreaking news. David is going to get to hold this child alive in his arms. And then the child's going to die. There's already going to be a bond, a love that's formed. And then there's going to be separation. And as I've considered this and thought about it, knowing that God's ways are always right and His ways are always just, you understand the moment that little child breathed its last breath on earth, it went to be in the presence of God. Okay, this child's never going to have to know what pain is, what real emotional pain, mental pain is. This child's not going to suffer like they're going to suffer. This is actually a very gracious thing God does with a child. Now, we don't see it that way because for some reason, I don't know why it is, but we humans, we see death as the ultimate vengeance, the ultimate doom, the ultimate awful thing that someone could ever experience. But as born-again believers, we understand that death is nothing but a passageway from this life to eternal life in glory with our Heavenly Father. We need to change our perspective of what's happening here. And what I come to understand is I believe what God's really relaying to David is, you're going to know how I'm feeling. Remember when you penned Psalm 23? Remember how close we were? Remember the connections we had made? Do you remember how sweet the fellowship was? But now, not because of, of what I've done, but because of what you've done, it's like you're dead to me. 
You don't even look like the same David as you did a few years back. I don't recognize you at all. I think in some small way, God is relaying to David just exactly how this feels for him. You understand that this is breaking God's heart, but at the same time that it's breaking God's heart that David is committing this transgression, at the same exact time that it's breaking God's heart, there's also another thing happening. Notice what it says there in verse 14, Howbeit, because by this deed, now listen to this, thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Oh, I don't know if you realize this or not, but did you know that there are people out in the lost world that are just waiting for a gotcha moment? They are just itching for you to fall headlong into some grotesque sin. Because finally, 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 they'll have something to grab a hold of and say, Hey, would you look at this? They say they're a Christian. Look what they did. Look what they said. Look how they acted. If you don't think that exists, you just wait. That's what they're waiting for. And that's what God is saying here. He's saying, David, by your transgression, you have given the enemies of God opportunity to look into you and your kingdom and blaspheme the God that you serve. It's almost like God is looking at David and saying, hey, you cannot imagine what damage you've done. You think you just committed this little transgression. You just fell into this little sin for a moment. Can I tell you something? This is going to have a ripple effect that will change this entire landscape. Say, preacher, why are you harping so hard on sin? It's because we have decided, again, I believe one of the great mistakes we're making right now is we're taking that first class nonstop ticket from sin to forgiveness and we're not abiding in the wrath of God. And so we get over here and we look back and we think, hey, I want to go visit sin every once in a while because it's such a great trip. God will forgive me. He'll cleanse me. What is it the Apostle Paul said in Romans? He said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. He says here that godly sorrow worketh repentance in 2 Corinthians. We're also told in Matthew chapter number 5, blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. The Bible says that a broken and a contrite heart God will not despise. We are taught over and over and over again the importance of abiding in the displeasure of God over sin. To feel the guilt is what I'm getting at. You know it's not wrong to feel guilty. We ought to feel guilty when we break God's law. When we transgress against Him. When there is sin in our life, there ought to be guilt. The final thing we see is the cost of sin here in this passage in verses 14 and 15. There is a description of what is exactly going to happen to David and his, uh, his personal life and his kingdom. And what we've got to do is we've stop, got to stop trying to explain away God's chastisement as mere coincidence. I see this a lot. Somebody will talk to me and they'll say, Preacher, I've I got to tell you something's going on. I don't know what to do. This has happened. That's going on. This has fallen apart. This is crumbling. I mean, I don't know what to do. And it's like they've not even taken one second to consider that God may have a reason for all this. 
Now, I'm not saying that every time life falls apart, it's the direct result of chastisement over sin. But I do believe there is a whole lot of times in the Christian life where we will look beyond the chastisement of God and see just a mere coincidence. I sinned on Monday and life fell apart on Wednesday, but they don't coincide with one another. They've got nothing to do with each other. I sinned back on Sunday night, and I'll tell you, Tuesday morning, things fell apart. But it's not any correlation at all. No connection. I hope that you, I hope that you see this in your life like, like I see it in mine. I never cease to be amazed at the loving, tender chastisement that God levels down on my life. And it doesn't take Him weeks or months or years. It's pretty immediate. I believe if you're one of His children, it will be immediate. God loves His children, just like you love your children. And when your children go headlong into something that they ought not be involved in, what do you do as a parent? You go after them. You get a hold of them. And if God puts it in your heart to do so, you discipline them. As the Bible teaches, we ought to discipline our children. And the whole idea is you don't let it go long and long and long. You, you, get, you get it taken care of right now. If your child lies to your face, what do you do? You discipline them right now. You don't let them lie for 10 months and then ch- chastise them. You chastise them as soon as you find out they're lying to you. And I believe that God being a just judge and knowing every part of our lives is very much involved this way. And what you and I have to do is we have to stop trying to explain away God's chastisement as mere coincidence. It is good for us to connect the chastisement of God to the sin that is in our lives. When we do this, it is part of dwelling in this time of guilt, this time of conviction, and this time of pain that once we experience the sweet forgiveness that's offered in Christ, we'll look back to and say, hey, I don't want to go back to that sin. Because I can remember the chastisement. Why is it? Why is it that I have every anticipation that whenever Simeon is 20 years old, he won't ever try to poke Canaan's eye out again with a pencil? Why, why do I have every bit of confidence that that will be the case? Some of you are thinking, hey, he's got more confidence in his kids than he probably should. Okay? No, there, there's a real reason why I'm completely convinced that when Simeon turns 20 years old, he's not going to try to jab Canaan's eye out with a pencil. And it's because of how hard I came down on him when he did when he was five. He won't ever forget it. In fact, I believe one of these days he's going to tell his children about the day that daddy came down on him. When he tried to do that, it came down that hard. You see, part of the process of truly repenting is experiencing the chastisement of God and not trying to explain it away as something else. The final thing I want to look at this morning is the conviction. The conviction of sin in Psalm chapter 51. I want to look and see what David really felt like. I say it's the final thing, but it's not. We're gonna, that's what us preachers do. We always say it's the final thing whenever we're two points away from being done. So this is the final thing. When I say this is really it, that means we're one point away. And whenever I say stand to your feet, that means we're to the last point. Okay? That's how this works. Okay? No, I promise we're going to conclude quickly here because I think it's important to get to this final thought. Look at Psalm chapter number 51 with me. And, and what we're going to see here is what I believe was penned under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but what was penned in the immediate aftermath of Nathan's reprimanding of David. 
I believe that as soon as David says, I have sinned against the Lord, and Nathan walks away from David, I believe David very immediately after that sits down and authors this psalm, Psalm chapter 51. We're going to read the whole thing. I'm going to make just some quick observations about it. But look at Psalm 51 with me. How does David feel the moment he gets to this point? This is what he says, verse 1 of Psalm 51. Have mercy... Upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, the only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest." What, what David is saying here in verse number 4 is he's saying, God, I understand that I sin and I'm saying it out loud so that anybody that can hear me, when your justice falls on my life, everyone's going to know I deserved it. One of the most beautiful things that happens in the process of confession, when we confess our sins before God, what we're really saying is, God, you are absolutely right to level your justice down on my life so that whenever God does it, He receives great glory. David's saying, I, I, I understand you are perfectly right to level your justice against me. I'm asking for mercy, but if you don't dish out mercy on me, if the child ends up dying, if my kingdom ends up being a kingdom of war, if my relationship with, with Bathsheba is difficult, I understand I deserve it. Verse 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew the right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. And take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Wow. Can you tell David's hurting? Can you tell David's broken? David is crushed under the weight of conviction. Verse 12, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. The sacrifice, listen to this, the sacrifice of God are a the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. When shall, then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. What David is saying, he's saying, listen, I would, I would offer you a thousand bulls. I'd offer you 10,000 rams, but that's not what you want from me. You want a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Some of you say, preacher, I'll I'll give whatever I've got to give. That's not what God's looking for. I'll do whatever whatever God wants me to do. That's That's not what He's looking for. 
Say to him, preacher, tell me. You're talking about sin and I can feel it. I can feel the Spirit of God. He's, he's tearing into my heart and I know God's trying to pull me out of this. I know God's trying to get me out of the sin that I have been so involved in. This easily besetting sin that has captivated my life for so long. I can feel the Spirit of God trying to pull me out of it. What is it God wants? He wants you to be broken over it. That's what He wants. And the Bible tells us that a broken and a contrite heart He will not despise. I've got so much I want to share with you still. But we'll close with just this. While David fell into sin, fell out of God's plan, he found God's perspective because a man of God was willing and had the courage to say exactly what God was thinking about the situation. He felt the weight of God's displeasure, but it didn't end there. Finally, he was forgiven by God's compassion. In fact, we see that already played out in 2 Samuel chapter number 12. As soon as David says, I have sinned against the Lord. What does Nathan say to David? He says, the Lord has forgiven you. And some would look at that and think, well, that seemed like a first class ticket, nonstop flight into forgiveness. But then we read Psalm 51 and we understand, no, it was not. This man was broken over his sin. And we know that even though he was already forgiven, he's still going to suffer through. We don't know how many weeks for sure, how many days, but there were days and weeks of pain and suffering over this child that ultimately would die. We know that David is going to feel the pain and the suffering of his sin for years to come as war just continues to pummel his kingdom as a result of what he's done here. Okay, This was not a one-stop ticket. This wasn't a first-class ticket to forgiveness. There was some pain involved. We understand that. But I want you to understand something too, that God in His great compassion and His great mercy was able to cleanse and forgive David of his transgression. You say, preacher, how do you know that? You've made it almost sound like there's no hope. You made it almost sound like I've just got to live in this guilt for the rest of my life. No, 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 no. No, on the contrary. The moment you finally find guilt is the moment you can finally enjoy forgiveness. You see, godly sorrow bringeth repentance. Feeling the pain over your sin is what will keep you from going back to it. And it's why so many Christians just keep running back into sin, running back into sin, running back into sin. It's because they never feel the pain. Say, well, then how does God deliver that forgiveness? Well, we know it's by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how forgiveness comes. You see, in Psalm chapter number 23, David was abiding in the Lord. And we spent three weeks talking about his abiding in the Lord. But in Psalm 51, something has happened. David has abandoned the Lord. He's walked away from God and he's walked headlong into sin and it has devastated his life. But I praise God today for Psalm chapter 32. Let's close with that this morning. Psalm chapter 32, just a few pages to your left. Psalm chapter number 32. The child dies. We know the rest of the story. I'll just reiterate it to you quickly. The child ends up dying. That Bathsheba births to David. And the moment the child dies, David goes from wearing sackcloth and ashes, and he puts back on his kingly robe, and he goes to eat a meal. And his 
His servants can't understand this. They say, now David, while he was sick and still alive, you were in sackcloth and ashes. Now he's dead and it's almost like you're rejoicing. And David says, no, 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 you don't understand. He said, I was in sackcloth and ashes because I believe in the mercy of the God that I serve. And if God saw fit to bring that child back to full health, I believe God could have done it. Now God didn't. He knows what's best. But he said, I was in sackcloth and ashes because I wanted God to know that I was leaning upon His mercy. But God has made it very clear what His will is now. I understand His will was to take that child to be with Him, that it was not to be mine to keep. And for that reason, I can get up now and go on my way. Now, I don't know how long after this psalm was penned, but this psalm gives us a clear indication that it is possible. Listen to this. I don't want you to miss it this morning. It is possible to go from being a Psalm 51 person to being a Psalm 32 person. You do not, while I'm trying to stress the importance of abiding under the wrath of God, feeling guilt over sin, being in a place of conviction, you do not have to stay there. Because I believe that there are also many Christians today who live their entire life just sitting in this place of guilt and pain over their past sin. You know, if Paul would have done that, he'd have never gone on to accomplish anything for the cause of Christ. But here's what he said. He said, this one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind me, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You do not have to abide in that guilt. Yes, it's important for the child of God to feel it, to experience it, to know it. But you don't have to stay there. You say, preacher, give me some proof of that. Could David, after committing adultery, after committing murder, Murder, could he too find forgiveness? The answer is yes. You say, how is that possible? You are grossly underestimating the power of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ if you somehow think that you have committed some kind of sin that is unable for Him to forgive. Look at what He says in Psalm chapter 32. Beginning of verse number 1, He says, Blessed, blessed. You know the word blessed there, it's a plurality of the word Happiness. If we wanted to, we could read it this way. Happy, happy, happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. He's recounting the feeling of conviction and the weight over his sin that he experienced over what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. Verse 4, For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. He's saying, I've cried so much I can't cry anymore, Selah. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto, the, unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go, and I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many Sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice ye righteous, and shout for joy all ye that are upright in heart. You say, preacher, how on earth do I go from being a Psalm 51 person, 
back to a Psalm 32 person. And I can answer that with one word. Jesus. That's how. There is great forgiveness that is offered in Christ. And it is astonishing beyond our wildest comprehension. But the truth is this morning that that is precisely why Jesus came and did what He did. To make a way for our transgressions to be forgiven for our iniquities. Not just to be covered, but to be remembered no more. Removed as far as the east is from the west. If you're here today and you're feeling guilt over sin, can I just tell you this morning, you don't have to abide there any longer. You can rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ has made it possible for a Psalm 32 life to exist again in you. Say, preacher, what do I got to do? Well, first, I want you to remember what Psalm 23 was like for you. Remember what it was like to be close to God. Those of you that know Jesus as your Savior. Remember what it was like to be close to God. And now remember how bad it feels to be far away from Him. Feel the weight. Feel the guilt. Feel the conviction. But then cast yourself back at the mercy of the Lord Jesus. You know what He says in 1 John chapter number 1? He says, if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There is no sin greater than the ability of God to forgive. And if you're feeling the weight and you're feeling the guilt, there's only one thing left to do, and that is confess. Walk away from it and let the godly sorrow of the present moment lead you to repentance down the road.